0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and we welcome Philip Mudd to the program today. Philip worked for the CIA for 20 years and the FBI for five. His last position at the CIA was as Deputy Director of the Counterterrorism Center. In 2005, then-FBI Director Robert Mueller appointed him the Deputy Director of the newly established National Security Branch. He left government service in 2010, Started a consulting company, began speaking in the media on security issues, and has written three books: Takedown Inside the Search for Al Qaeda, The Head Game High Efficiency Analytic Decision Making, and The Art of Solving Complex Problems Quickly. And today we'll be talking about his latest, Black Site: The CIA in the Post-9/11 World, which is published by LiveRight. Philip, let's start with the title term. Exactly what is a black site? Black site is a term of art that came around uh, in, in 2002. The
1: CIA captured its first prisoner, a high-level al-Qaeda prisoner, in the spring of 2002. And there was there was a series of conversations at CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, about what do you do with a senior al-Qaeda guy? Do you let him go? Do you give him to the country in which you caught him? Do you send him back to the U.S. judicial system? Or, as it turned out, do you create secret sites called black sites to send the prisoner to so that you can engage him in secret interrogations and what was then called enhanced interrogation techniques. They are secret sites, black sites.
0: Did the CIA have any history in, in taking prisoners before this? Boy, the CIA went into this cold. That was one of the challenges
1: of the early early days of the Black Site program. It's outlined in the book, the CIA is a can-do organization, one of its advantages, but sometimes when you're can-do, especially in the kinds of things that took place in these black sites like interrogations, if you're can-do and you don't have experience, you make mistakes. They didn't have a lot of experience. They had a lot of agility. Agility won the day. Experience came over time.
0: And so, how many tactical assignments did the CIA Conduct before and after nine eleven did they have to do a lot more field work and instead of just intelligence gathering yeah, the world really changed for the agency after nine eleven Th- Think of this in a couple of terms
1: before nine eleven especially in the Soviet days, you might collect intelligence on what the Kremlin was thinking, what their missile capability was. You might be collecting intelligence on what kinds of technology they would put into submarines. Go much more tactical after 9-11. The core of the business that was the CIA was involved in was what I might call identity intelligence. That is, finding a human being, in this case a leader or a mid-level member of al-Qaeda, halfway around the world and finding him, and it was always him, finding him with such ability that you know where he might be tomorrow so you can stage a capture operation. Extremely tactical, on-the-ground intelligence.
0: It was always a person y'all had collected in the first place. It wasn't someone handed over, someone else.
1: Typically, it would be someone that we were involved in capturing. That doesn't mean we capture them ourselves. When you're operating overseas, you're working hand-in-glove with local security services because they can knock doors down. They have a local security service that has capabilities we didn't have, for example, sometimes language capabilities. So oftentimes, we were not working solo. We were working hand-in-glove with foreign security services
0: overseas. Now, there was another term of art that's important in all this, rendition. What was the agency's role in rendition before and post 9-11?
1: A rendition, I think a lot of people don't know this, has a long history going back to the 90s under President Clinton in American intelligence. That involves the capture of a foreign prisoner and sending that prisoner on a plane back to either the United States or sometimes a country of origin. For example, if you capture someone from the Middle East in a South Asian country, you might tell that Middle Eastern country, we will transport him to your country to home where he's from. Egypt would he be an example or maybe Jordan. We will bring him back or help you bring him back as long as you charge him, that is, bring him through the justice system and treat him properly. That second one, treat him properly, caused a lot of problems and still has people asking questions about why we agreed to send prisoners home to some of these countries.
0: Al-Qaeda is not a state actor, doesn't have uniformed soldiers. So it was argued that the Geneva Conventions of Protections for Prisoners of War did not apply to them. So what were the guidelines on how to handle these detainees? Boy, that's a conversation for about three hours. They were
1: back and forth and back and forth, starting in the summer in in mid-2002, after the first prisoner, his name was Abu Zubaydah, was captured. CIA, which has a pretty large general counsel unit, the CIA was consulting with especially Department of Justice lawyers, who were sort of the legal counsel, if you will, for the U.S. government. The CIA was talking to the Department of Justice about what was appropriate under the Constitution and U.S. law if you wanted to use interrogation techniques against prisoners. The first decision, formal decision from the Department of Justice came in August of 2002, outlining exactly what the law was and what techniques, for example, sleep deprivation, you could use with the prisoner. Now, now to, to close on this, those legal exchanges between the agency and the Department of Justice lasted for years and went back and forth and back and forth. So there was a series of decisions from justice about what the CIA could do.
0: What were some of the main points of evolution in the approach over those years?
1: There were evolutions in terms of what tactics were used, precision, and this is really boring, but critically important when you're running something this controversial. I talked to some of the lawyers about this evolution in terms of policies and procedures, even if the Department of Justice says something is legal under the law, exactly how do you administer that at a field site? How many people are in the room? How long can you administer a technique? What role do physicians play in the administration of interrogation techniques? So the evolution lasted 03, 04, a long time for the CIA to understand what the best way was to execute Department of Justice guidance.
0: And so what was the guidance before 9-11 for interrogating suspects or detainees?
1: The CIA did not interrogate suspects and detainees before 9-11, and there was even a prohibition on CIA officers being in the room when a foreign security service was interrogating someone. There had been, going back to the 70s, allegations of abuse of prisoners overseas from some areas where the CIA was operating in concert with foreign governments. People didn't want to touch this. They didn't want to touch something so controversial as the CIA being in the room with a security service that had a questionable reputation. And when that security service was interrogating somebody, you didn't want a CIA officer having to watch something or experience something that was inappropriate, illegal, and inhumane. So, boy, the world changed radically after 9-11 when the CIA was not only in the room but conducting the interrogations.
0: The attitudes of the executive branch and Congress changed radically after 9-11. But then again, as time passes again, they start to revert back to their pre 9-11 911 attitudes. So how did the people that were in charge of the program in the CIA feel when those attitudes were receding?
1: Boy, we thought the, the level of national unity after 911, something I try to talk about in the book, was remarkable, not only in terms of its intensity and the unanimity across America, basically don't ever let this happen again, but also in the speed with which that unanimity Declined, I think largely because of the lead up to the Gulf War and political divisions on whether what President Bush was doing was right for America. I served at the CIA. The book is written in the third person, but I witnessed a lot of the decisions that were being made. I think the CIA officers involved knew eventually that there would be a reckoning that people would say, we're not certain about what you did. They knew they would be judged over time. There was a surprise, maybe even a little bit of naivete in terms of, A, how quickly some attitudes changed in Washington. That is the Congress saying, we're not sure we like what you did. And also the unwillingness many thought of the Congress to speak fairly about what they knew when and how they had agreed to CIA operations that turned out to be really controversial.
0: Oftentimes, this fell along partisan lines. Senator John McCain, since he had been a POW in Vietnam, had some very strong opinions about the process.
1: That's right. That's an interesting chapter in the interrogation process, the the process, the evolution of the policy. There were briefings of key senators and congressmen, I think in retrospect, too small a number of them. A lot of CIA officers would say that's one of the mistakes they made and not pressing for more congressmen to be and Congresswomen to be briefed. Senator McCain was not on the Intelligence Oversight Committee, but because of his experience in Vietnam, there was a view that he should be briefed. When he was briefed, he was one of the few, maybe the only, who was vehement in saying this shouldn't happen. And the book outlines that. And the, the senior officers, including former directors, CIA directors I spoke with, are open in saying McCain was opposed to what they were doing and what they were briefing.
0: What was determined to be at the beginning a valid enhanced interrogation technique versus what would consider to be legally torture?
1: I'm not saying people will like this, but this is the simple litmus test captured in the law that was used, and that is you cannot subject someone knowingly to long-term physical or psychological damage. You can't knowingly go in saying, I want to damage someone's brain over time. I'm not talking about sleep deprivation for a night. I'm saying over time or damage somebody's body over time. If you apply those principles, limited periods, for example, of sleep deprivation, putting someone in an enclosed space for a short period of time, the well-known technique only used on three of the hundred plus detainees the CIA had, but the well-known technique now of waterboarding. Sleep deprivation was one of the most common, and that, according to the legal guidance, again, people will dispute this, but this is the legal guidance that came from the Department of Justice, that did not meet a standard of causing long-term physical or psychological damage to a prisoner, so that was deemed
0: appropriate. You say that waterboarding was only used on three detainees had it been used by the military as well, or was the only three instances in in government at this time?
1: There was a lot of reverse engineering going on. We talked earlier about the CIA not having experience in these programs, but having a lot of agility, saying, look, if nobody else will do this, the mission of the CIA over time has been often doing things that nobody else wants to do. The CIA sought out individuals they already had relationships with, including a couple of contractors, that is, outside employees who were not CIA employees, but had experience in training U.S. military to resist interrogation. The training program is called SEER, S-E-R-E. The bottom line is U.S. prisoners, for example, had been taught to withstand, to undergo waterboarding so they would know how they would feel if they were ever captured overseas. The CIA hired people who were involved in training resistance to U.S. officers to use those same techniques against al-Qaeda prisoners.
0: But in that approach, when a uh, United States military officer is undergoing this training, he knows that he's not going to be killed in this process. That That's not on the board. And a detainee has to have some level of ignorance on what links his captors are willing to go to.
1: Sure, and I, I think this is one reason we can speak about this today. The likelihood these programs are ever instituted in my lifetime I think is about zero. I know there's public – dispute about that. A lot of the American public thinks, hey, maybe America will go back to this. As a former insider, and we could talk about this, I I would be extremely surprised if any senior intelligence official ever agreed to do this again, not because they're ashamed of it, but because they know that Congress over time might not continue to support them. But I think one of the reasons we could talk about is that prisoners would know today and what's revealed in the book that obviously they would not be killed, but also that there is a limit on what the CIA would do. One of the advantages the agency interrogators had was a prisoner was going into a situation where he didn't know what the end game was. And that psychology of having a prisoner say, I want out, I don't want this to continue because I don't know what's happening down the road is powerful. I would close by saying there were some prisoners who almost immediately rolled because they didn't know what was down the road and they simply wouldn't accept it some others were really tough but some rolled right away
0: would you have even been able to write this book if information hadn't leaked out about the black sites
1: that is a great question i'm not sure i would have written the book one of the reasons i wrote it was not only to capture a slice of american history but to allow american citizens to stand in the shoes of the cia officers who did these kinds of things Because the information has become so public, I think the likelihood that somebody could read this book and learn something that would help an adversary is about zero. My litmus test in writing the book was I don't want to write stuff that will help an adversary learn something to their advantage. But, yeah, the fact that this stuff has come up publicly, I think, gave people like me an opening to say, if you want to understand American history, we can now write it because some of this stuff is already out in the open.
0: So what kind of vetting did the book have to go through from intelligence agencies before it's published?
1: I am required by regulation to vet everything I write. I don't want to get deep into the vetting process. Let me just say it is extremely frustrating and challenging for American officers, and I've been outside the service for nine years, to go through a vetting process. Extremely challenging. We don't like it. I don't think the process is fair, but it is what it is.
0: You're very respectful and or maybe required to be so and not reveal many CIA names, except for people in the highest echelons of power that are public knowledge. You remain mum on the locations, even when locations were mentioned in the press. You don't mention those in the book
1: those are two separate issues. In terms of naming locations overseas, again, one of the basic tests that I went through was I don't want to embarrass a country that might have cooperated with us. So even if it's in the press, I don't want to reveal something that another country might have to answer for. On the issue of revealing names, there are some simple reasons for that. A lot of most of the people I interviewed 35 plus were former peers. And I told them, have no fear. Even if you say something that's negative, your name's not going to be attached to it. But also, let's be blunt, there's a security issue here still, even 17 years after the first prisoner, Abu Zubaydah, was captured. If I start naming people's names in there, there's 330 million Americans. And as we've seen, even recently in America, some of those people have severe mental issues and also a proclivity toward violence. I don't want to name people in there and then have them—it's it's highly unlikely, but still have there, there be a one-thousandth of one percent chance— that there might be a threat to them afterwards.
0: But what about for yourself? In writing the book Takedown and now this book, do you think you've raised your profile as a target?
1: Yes, I do get a regular stream of threatening emails. I have a website where people email in. I think listeners would be discouraged by the level of vitriol. The language and the comments by people writing in are unprintable and unspeakable. But you can imagine what they say about me and my parents and my family. That said, most people almost always are careful not to make a specific actionable threat like, I will come find you and hurt you. They'll say you should die. They'll say you should die of cancer today, which is the kind of stuff I get. But most of them are not stupid enough. To step over the line. When they do, I have a process where I can notify law enforcement of that. I must say also, people on the street, and I, I, because I do TV for a living, people come up often are y- almost uniformly extremely polite. 99.9% of the people who come up are polite. Still got to think though. Every time somebody comes up, I wonder, is this going to be the one? Because one or two have been quite aggressive. Is, is this going to be the one who's not quite all there?
0: Do these threats come solely from people who. Have interest in Islamic radical organizations, or do you get people that are perhaps overly patriotic and, and think you're revealing too much?
1: No, these are typically people who have a political perspective, particularly at one party that they want to support. They think that people like me are un American. They think that people like me are unacceptable that we make negative comments about a candidate or an official in office they don't like. And believe me, when they write, they go nuts. The volume is quite surprising. It's, I don't find it discouraging. I hate to say an eternal optimist, despite the book. It is, on occasion, surprising how many people are just so angry, and not only angry, but how inappropriate the language they use is for somebody they've never met. It's just quite striking.
0: Let's go back into a little bit of history. What was the CIA's approach to counterterrorism like before 9-11? Frustrating
1: period. And I think the book starts by talking about the frustrations of the officers who were there who watched the rise of al Qaeda and realized we can't really conduct capture operations at the CIA. The CIA can't obviously participate in drone strikes. There were no drone strikes before nine eleven. You can't conduct operations in Afghanistan against bin Laden that might risk a number of U.S. servicemen's lives. In other words, if you're going into a bin Laden compound, the risk that servicemen might die in that raid might be too high. So People recognized that bin Laden was a lethal threat, but they felt that their hands were tied behind their back. I think – I mean they're frustrated with with the White House, both Republican and Democrat, in terms of their hands being tied. But I think looking back, you can understand Americans simply weren't ready for the ferocity of the anti-Al Qaeda operations that took place after 9-11 and and until those attacks occurred.
0: What was it like transitioning from being concerned about Shia-based terrorism like Hezbollah into more Sunni-based terrorism with Al Qaeda?
1: One of the challenges there is if you look at the Hezbollah organization, I used to look at them some when I was at the CIA. It's a highly centralized organization. In classic intelligence terms, that gives you a nerve center to chase leadership, ideology, propaganda. You knew where to go. Even geographically, you might know where the geographic center of the organization is. With the Al-Qaeda organization and what's come afterwards, you have to think of this as sort of a loose network, and network might even be too strong a word. I think we're devolving, especially after Al-Qaeda, into 2019, into a cluster of groups or even individuals, cells, who have a like-minded ideology. The reason I contrast a centralized group in cells is if you're an intelligence officer and you don't have a nervous center to attack, you have, you know— cases open in 50 states, for example, trying to figure out where every single person is when they're not communicating among each other. They're not being trained by any central organization. You can think of it as fighting a cancerous tumor or having no tumor and simply having cancerous cells all over your body. How do you destroy a bunch of cancerous cells if there's no central core to go after? That is really one of the challenges of transitioning from a group like Hezbollah, she group, to the diverse Sunni groups that we had to chase.
0: In our modern day It seems that their attacks are fairly low tech, but the communications are high tech. What are the challenges in approaching someone that's going to just work with an IED or gunfire as opposed to then communicating via the Internet?
1: There are a couple of basic challenges. The fundamental one I would give you is speed. Some people might be surprised. We saw this more in the ISIS days, 2013, 2014, even, even before 2007 2008 the speed with which a youth will radicalize and by that i want to be clear a lot of the people we chase didn't really understand the ideology they were adopting they would radicalize just by saying i'm angry these people explain they validate that is al qaeda isis they validate my anger that can happen over the course of weeks that kind of radicalization and then as you're saying the construction of a simple explosive device, if you're just taking some nails and explosive material and putting in a backpack, can also be quite rapid. So one of the challenges we had was, and I think the intel guys still have, is how do you chase individuals in a free society if they go from radicalization to suicide bomber in a matter of months, and they're just operating out of a basement? Boy, that is tough.
0: And going back to the, the history of the agency, when there was the transition between Tenet and Director Goss, was there a change in approach to counterterrorism under their two different directorships.
1: Tenet set the tone. He used to tell us, and I spent a lot of time with him, that's the former director who was obviously there on 9-11, he used to say a couple of things, one of which was, hey, if there's another catastrophic, tragic event, if there's what we used to call, and it's outlined in the book, the second wave, the second wave of attackers, which we anticipated for years, if there's a second wave... And on the day or the day after that second wave, you said, you would say, I wish we had done X, Y, or Z. Why would you wait till then to do it? I want to hear about it today. Tenet set the tone of urgency, of aggressiveness. I think by the time Goss got there, Director Goss, and I I dealt with him as well, the tone was so well embedded. And Goss was obviously at that point supportive of how aggressive the CIA was in in the war against al-Qaeda. The tone was already set. Go every day, go fast, go hard. And if you would do something after an attack, do it today.
0: What were the challenges specifically in an organization that had never detained people for any length of time then getting into the imprisoning game?
1: Pretty basic challenge, and it's the same challenge I think any large organization would have. But one of the reasons, the minor reason I wrote the book is I thought people in large organizations that are transitioning quickly, especially in the speed with which America changes today, there are lessons, I hope, in the book for the kinds of things you might Think about when your organization is transitioning. The one I give you is boring but critical. That is, if you're going down a path where you don't have a lot of experience, figuring out, nailing down tightly. Policies and procedures from A to Z, from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. What happens every minute of the day? What happens at every step of a rendition? What happens at every step of an interrogation? How do you train people systematically to do that stuff? How do you oversee them to ensure they don't make mistakes? Coming up with the policy and procedures guidelines, especially including lawyers who tend to be detail-oriented, that was really challenging, I think, for an organization that was going down a path that had never gone down before.
0: Most of the pushback, it seemed, came from the inspector general's office within the CIA. What were their major objections to the program?
1: The inspector general and inspector generals across the U.S. government, including the FBI, have a tradition of being obviously outsiders, separate, but also very aggressive. I think in general, the inspector general at the CIA had reservations about whether this was even something the CIA should be doing, I think moral reservations, which a lot of us objected to. Our view was you're supposed to review how we are implementing something that has been agreed upon by the White House, the president of the United States and the Department of Justice. You're not supposed to be telling us whether you think this is right or wrong. But my point is, I think the inspector general's office had a view that what we were doing was morally questionable. And then some aggressive reviews on whether we were implementing guidelines properly. And that's where I think the inspector general has a real role to play at the CIA, whether you're listening to people's cell phones inappropriately or appropriately, or whether you're interrogating prisoners, the inspector general looks at how you implement. And he looked at what we did toughly. He was tough and saying, this is where you're going off the rails and you need to improve. He did that a lot.
0: And it was thought that the leak did come from the inspector general's office.
1: That's correct. In fact, there was an admission from someone, probably the most critical leak to the Washington Post in the, in the interrogation program, from someone who was disgruntled, who had worked in the inspector general's office. She later admitted to the leak and was fired from the CIA.
0: Now, you worked later with the FBI for five or so years. What was the difference in cultures between the CIA and the FBI? Holy Toledo.
1: That's like reading a book in an audiobook. I mean, it's two different senses almost. You can think of the CIA as extremely agile, risk-taking, not that great with policy procedure, even organizational structure, not that great with hierarchies. People would routinely tell the CIA director, I don't think we should do that. I'm not doing that. The FBI, I would say on the downside, not the most agile organization I've ever seen, nor should they be, by the way. When When you're trying to determine whether someone should be charged with a federal legal violation, you need to be careful. That said, in terms of policies, procedures, training people and respect for management hierarchy, they were ahead of the CIA. So both organizations, it's funny when I cross the Potomac River, they're on different sides of the Potomac River. Both organizations sort of look across the river and denigrate their colleagues lots of times, especially as you move up in humorous ways. But I came to realize they both had really complementary skills. The FBI could have been a little more agile. The CIA could have taken a page out of the FBI's book on how to be more rigorous in terms of policies, procedures, how organizations run difficult programs.
0: So you spend 25 years at this heightened state of alert, essentially looking for things that could harm America, and you retire out. Where does all that sense of alertness go to? How do you feel? How do you adjust to that?
1: Well, first, uh, I don't want to correct you, but I I quit. I didn't retire. I had 25 years. And at the age of 48, I said enough. I mean, which is significant if you're thinking about things like pension, because I took a tremendous pension. (laughs) But anyway, I rarely get that question. It took me a couple of years. When I got out in 2010, there'd be a report on radio or TV that there'd been a bombing somewhere or that there was a terror attack somewhere around the world, including in Europe or the United States. And it took me maybe two or three years to sort of not have a stomach churn i don't want to overstate this i don't want to over dramatize it but i i'm talking strictly in terms of you know the phone rings in the middle of the night and somebody says when you're in the service somebody says over a secure line you know a bomb went off in africa what did we get wrong what's going to happen what do we do next i got to go in and figure out how do we respond to this to start escaping from that almost immediate reaction saying what happened what do we do wrong what do we tell the president tomorrow morning that took two or three years, and to give you a, a rare, slightly humorous angle on this, it also took me two or three or four years uh, I worked for myself not to have a schedule. I would wake up Friday and say, why am I not working today? It's 7.30. Why am I having a cup of coffee? What's wrong with me? Why? It took me a long time to get used to a pace that I controlled and that the government
0: didn't. So in looking at your bio, your undergraduate and graduate degrees are in English literature. Of
1: course they are. That's like everybody <laughs> at the CIA. So why is that the case? I love to read. My mother was a teacher. We had five kids under the age of seven. She used to sit at the head of the dinner table and read us books. She was a teacher for for children. And we got a love of books. I had wanted to inspire, I thought, high school students to read. So I got a graduate degree in literature. I couldn't find a job at high schools. I wanted to teach kids English literature. So I was inspired by my mom, inspired by a love of books. I still read all the time. One of the reasons I write books is because I like words, even though the subject material is a little bit tough. I like verbs. I like nouns. I like to ensure I'm not writing in passive voice. English literature to me was an avenue to teach kids, and it just didn't work out.
0: We recently had a retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel on and he had also had an undergraduate degree in English literature and his father taught the classics and was the dean of Cornell. It seems so strange that both of y'all went into protecting our country from the English literature.
1: Well, I, you know, it's funny. I needed a job in 1984 and the CIA was advertising those are Reagan years where there's a lot of budget for national security the CIA was advertising in the Wall Street Journal. So my father called me one day and said, Hey, if you want a decent job, I knew what the CIA was for movies. I love teaching. Sometimes I teach for fun high school kids. And they'll say, you know, how did you start to create your path in grade school or high school to get to a national security position? I said, I drove up, I had no idea. I drove up to the CIA front gate one day with a resume because my dad said they're advertising in the Wall Street Journal. I had no idea what they did. I just knew maybe this
0: is pretty cool. I remember after 9-11, there were advertisements out for the CIA, and I was also looking at the State Department. Yeah. I, I went through the service exam, and the CIA ad said, must be able to flourish under conditions of moral ambiguity.
1: Really? I, that's, that's interesting. That's addressed in the book. The final chapter is a reflections chapter. I would agree to that. Remember, the, the, the business, especially the traditional spy business, is getting somebody to turn their backs on an organization or a government they joined. If you're dealing with the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians, it's getting someone to commit to being a traitor. That's a tough job. The last part of the book in terms of the the moral ambiguity, I talked to every single one of the officers I interviewed about how they reflected on the morality of using tough tactics against a prisoner. And there's some tough reflections on there and what they thought. They came to think that what we did was acceptable, but that's not to say they went in saying this is a great thing. What they went in saying was there will be a second wave unless we stop these guys now.
0: Do you think that your experience in literature made you be able to empathize with people more in that way and kind of understand how they tick and make you a little bit more imaginative than someone else might be in, a, in another situation?
1: No, I don't. I think that when I interviewed a lot of candidates for the CIA, I don't think it was their educational background that changed how agile their minds were. I can't put my finger on it, but upbringing, the variety of experiences, including things like work experience, traveling overseas. If you have not traveled overseas, you do not understand the world, living overseas, learning a foreign language, getting a variety of experiences from childhood through college. And then when I started traveling extensively after I joined at the age of 24, seeing how other cultures operate, assuming that sometimes America is wrong and that you're wrong, watching mistake after mistake. I think when you see a lot of mistakes, when you see a lot of the world, you not only get the experience, I hope that you get a
0: little bit of humility. Have you ever thought about writing fiction yourself?
1: I've tried to write fiction. I'm not good at it. Fiction requires an ability to create a character and dialogue that I don't think I have the creativity to do. I've tried it for fun. I sort of like nonfiction because I like envisioning a scene or envisioning something you can see, envisioning a conversation around a threat table and saying, if the people I'm writing for can't see that and never experience that, what words can I use to have them live it? And I find that really intriguing.
0: So in looking at the world today, what can you share with us that we should be concerned about that is shareable?
1: I'm going to give you an answer that sounds like I'm trying to dodge, but I don't worry about the stuff I used to worry about. The likelihood that a terrorist is going to influence an American family in Memphis or elsewhere is relatively low. The likelihood that your child will be affected by a terrorist is relatively—I mean, I spent 25 years of my life doing this, so I don't want to downgrade what we did. We tried to keep Americans safe, but I look at things that I worry about in terms of the likelihood something will affect a child in any American family. And let me be blunt. What I see in this country is an inability of Americans to escape thinking that we are exceptional and look in the mirror and say, compared to peer countries, especially in Europe, our ability to educate a child is mediocre. Our ability to eliminate the likelihood of infant mortality, the ability to look it in the mirror and say, our life expectancy once you get past infant mortality is mediocre in terms of basics. Education and health were not that good. That affects every single American, especially the education piece, which has to do with how much people make, how happy they are, whether they're going to be incarcerated. We spend way too much time talking about national security and way too little time saying, if we're so exceptional, why are we worse than the Europeans and some of the East Asians in the basics of how healthy we are and how we educate a child? It makes no sense to me.
0: And I guess that's why you get some of those unpleasant remarks on the Internet.
1: It's interesting. People think when I say that, and I say it often, that that means I don't like America. They will come back routinely, including when I do speeches, and say, you don't think America is exceptional. And my answer is exceptional. People never say that. A, they have the humility to say it's rude to say that. And B, they have the humility to say maybe I should wake up and ensure that either I maintain that edge or that I improve it. People are so defensive of America. They think any suggestion we can improve is an attack on the country. I mean, I grew up going to the Little Leagues and playing baseball, playing t-ball, fishing in the canals of South Miami, Florida, where I grew up, playing basketball. I mean, I'm an American, but hopefully, and and you're right, people hate to hear this, we have the humility to look in the mirror and say, sometimes we're not the best. The same thing you would tell a seven-year-old if you were playing Little League baseball, and he said, I'm the best. I hope you'd say, son, even if you were We don't say that. We wake up and we try to do better. That, I think, is the heart of where America should be. We can do better every day, even if we are exceptional today.
0: You look at champions in sport and they practice every day and they always try to get the edge on their opponents. You look at J.P. Morgan in the past when they asked how much money was enough, a little bit more. Yeah. People who are excellent always strive to improve.
1: Yeah. This this phrase, American exceptionalism, is, is tough to deal with because people are so wrapped into patriotism, that, that they think it's unpatriotic to say we can do better. And that, to me, is just it just doesn't make sense.
0: I think when they say exceptionalism, they means America should be accepted from criticism. I think that's
1: probably true, and nobody should. I mean, any corporation, if you look at how corporations die, any corporation that says they are exceptional means they're eventually going to be blinded to how they'll be undercut by a competitor and they're going to lose. Go back to the 60s, the early 70s when Detroit said their competition was Ford and GM and these little Japanese cars came in. The Detroit auto industry said, we're exceptional. These guys are chumps and they
0: never recovered. That's a, a strange note to go out on, but we'll take Sorry it. Sorry about that. I'm not that <laughs> depressed. Life is good. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for coming in today and sharing this vital bit of American history with
1: us. Thanks for grilling me. I need to go take a nap. Thanks a lot. <laughs>
0: Philip Mudd is the author of Black Sight, the CIA in the Post-9-11 World, which is published by Liveride. Right. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at booktalk, care of WYPL. 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.